if you would, and turn with us to the book of Titus, chapter 2. Also, while you're doing that, if you would take just a moment to take the verse from Hebrews chapter 11 that is in front of you, or on the end of the rack, and pass it across. This is that interesting section at the end of chapter 11 where this pastor has been talking about other people who lived by faith. And that wonderful juxtaposition of people who saw great victory, at least by human eyes, because of their faith, and others who suffered heart-wrenching defeat by our eyes because of their faith. And the bottom line, I believe that this pastor is trying to say to his young congregation and by the Holy Spirit to say down to the ages to us is, it does not matter whether we win or lose in the White House or the State House or the Courthouse. What matters is we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And so today, as we think about those who were stoned and sawed in two and died by the sword and wandered around in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute and afflicted and mistreated, they lived their lives by faith. So dwell on that this week as we think about the path that God may have for us as we walk as well. Today, we part paths for just one week from what's going on in Bible study. If you were in Bible study this morning, I hope you had as much fun as we did in the young adult class talking about Revelation chapter 4 and the power of worship to pull us out of the struggles of our day-to-day lives. And, um, well, most of you know me pretty well. We, we spent most of our time on three words in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 4. When that door to heaven opened, And the voice like a trumpet that had to be the voice of Jesus said to John, come up here. This morning, I want you, whatever's going on in your life, it may be heart-wrenching. It may be job-threatening. It may be marriage-threatening. It may be health-threatening. Whatever's going on in your lives right now, for these next 30 minutes, I'm going to ask you to come up here. Come up here to where we can focus on God, our eyes above the waves of life, so that we can get a concept and a picture of how majestic and glorious our Father is. But we're not going to be in Revelation chapter 4 in this hour. Instead, the time has come for the next in our series of discussions and sermons about what are the marks of a healthy church. You may remember back in February... I shared with you a brief overview of what I believe to be the nine basic qualities that a healthy, strong church should have. And then back in May, we talked about the first mark, which I believe is fundamental to all the others, and that is making the Word of God central in everything that we do. And the way we preach it, the way we teach it, should be to open the Word, let the Word of God speak, not for us to impose our thoughts on the Word, but rather to let the Word speak And let God speak through his word to us and then apply it to our lives. But today, I want us to take the next step forward in that process as we talk about the second quality of a healthy, strong church. And that has to do with sound biblical doctrine. When I was a boy, I know this is going to surprise you, but at times... My dad would get a little bit frustrated when we went on long trips because I had a tendency to talk a little bit more 
than my dad's patience could endure. I know that's surprising to you. I was a little bit of a jabberbox. If dad were alive today, he'd be rolling his eyes when I said a little bit of a jabberbox. So my dad, in his wonderful wisdom, gave me a job to do. About a week before we would leave from Atlanta to drive down to Daytona Beach, Florida, he would go and buy a brand new Rand McNally Atlas. Every year new. I don't know why. I guess he figured that way I got a new Atlas every year. And he'd say, Stevie, this is your job. Between now and the time we leave on Friday morning, I want you to take your magic marker and I want you to mark the route that we're going to go from our house all the way down to the hotel in Daytona, New Smyrna Beach, wherever we were going that year. And I want you to find one place that we've never visited somewhere along that path that we can go and visit. And then when we get in the car, I want you to very carefully watch as we go down the road, watch every mile marker so you can tell us exactly where we are along the road. Who's, yeah, you got that. Keep him busy. The minute I start jabbering, he'd say, Steve, where are we on the map? Oh, hold on just a minute, let me check and see. And that would shut me up for at least 35, 40 seconds. Now, you probably know that the Neil men are notorious for being terrible, having a terrible sense of direction. But we can read maps, okay? I can read a map, and I love reading maps. And even though I know GPSs have replaced most of, most of those, see if you can figure out how to fold it up and get it back into your glove compartment maps, there's still something about having a big map, because you can see the whole trip. And I, and I have younger friends that go, well, Steve, you can do the very same thing with the GPS, yeah, and it's this big. Okay, I like to be able to fold that puppy out and be able to see all the way from Waterloo, Illinois to Pratt, Kansas and where we're going to go and how we're going to get there. And I understand that the analogy is a little bit flawed because you can do a lot of things. Actually, you can do more things with a GPS than you can with a map. But there's something about being able to hold in your hand a picture that will show you how to get from where you are to where you need to be. God has given us a map. And that map is called sound doctrine. Now, ultimately, his word, the Bible, is a map, but the Bible itself needs a map. It needs a network, a framework that we can use so that as we read various and sundry parts of it, we can fit it all together into one whole. We can understand how the pieces fit. Otherwise, we fall into this trap of reading a passage of Scripture, taking some little nugget of truth out of it that is totally unconnected to anything else, and then try to remember that. And then next week, we take another nugget of truth. But what sound doctrine does for us is it provides us with a framework. It is a summary of the Bible's teaching that is both faithful to the Bible and useful for life. And I'm here today to share with you why I believe that good, sound, biblical doctrine is essential to our life. And we're going to start right there. We're going to look at probably a dozen passages of Scripture this morning. Some of them you'll have time to flip to, some that you won't. Just listen, mark them down, look them up as we go. Maybe this afternoon as you're studying or resting, you can look at them in more depth. But in Titus chapter 2, Paul makes a comment to his young protege on the island of Crete. He says, you must say the things that are consistent with sound teaching or sound doctrine. Notice he didn't say, I want you to teach sound doctrine. He said, I want you to teach things that are consistent with sound doctrine. Now, I don't want to get too technical here, but I want you to understand, doctrine the biblical truths of God's Word are not imposed on the Bible by us. They are revealed by God's Holy Spirit to us. And then as God reveals those things, we begin to see how He pieces His story together. 
And as soon as Paul says that, he immediately starts giving examples about life. What the older men should do. What the younger men should do. What the older women should do. What the, what the slaves or employees should do in relationship to their employers. So he says this sound teaching, this sound doctrine is not just some academic exercise. It's not just some philosophy or some way of, of, of organizing verses in the Bible like some knaves topical Bible would do. This is about life. And the choices and the decisions that we make about life. Sharon and I had the privilege when we were in Africa in language school, we were required to visit several different churches there in Kenya while we were in language school. And some of them were called uh, Africa Africa independent churches or Kenyan independent churches. The reason they were called independent because they weren't tied to any particular denomination. And so often these independent churches had been founded because a pastor or a leader would find one verse of scripture or one passage of scripture and build their entire church on that one passage. It is forbidden for women to cut their hair. So it was a church that had women who wouldn't cut their hair. It is forbidden for this to happen or this should be this way. And so you would find all these because they had taken one little piece out of the whole and emphasize just that one part that is not what sound doctrine is all about if you were to flip back a couple of pages to first timothy in first timothy chapter one paul says to timothy now who is at ephesus as i urged you when i went to macedonia remain in ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach different doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies these promote empty speculations rather than god's plan which operates by faith and then he explains what the goal is the goal the goal of biblical doctrine the goal of sound bible oriented teaching and doctrine is this is love that comes from a pure heart a good conscience and sincere faith you see we don't teach doctrine in the church just so we can be erudite and scholarly in our understanding of the bible we learn doctrine so we can learn how to live and not just as individuals but also as a church doctrine is important for the life of the church you know i think many of us at times tend to see our christian lives more like an individual sport than a team sport we tend to see christianity and our christian walk as as, as something sort of like uh, bowling or golf or surfing where you do your very very best and you don't really worry about that guy over there or that guy over there you'll find out at the end of the day who actually won the, the the match your job is to play the very best that you can and we often see our christian lives that way so i'm out there trying to do my very very best to live for christ as strongly as i can and bill is doing that and sally's doing that and mary's doing that and john's doing that but that's not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible says that this life of faith that is in concord with biblical doctrine is a team sport. We all work together. Goodness knows, how many times do we hear that? In Acts chapter 2, when they became Christians, it says they were added what? To the church. When they were baptized in 1 Corinthians 12, they were baptized into the body, into the church. When they come to faith in Ephesians, they are drawn near to God and near to God's people in Ephesians chapter 2. Speaking of Ephesians, let's just look at one passage from Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 4, we have this consummate picture of how doctrine works for the life of the whole church. In Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 11, look at what Paul says. It says, and he personally, I love that, God personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the training of the saints in the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into a mature man, 
mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning, with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. From him the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each part. We are a family. We are a body. Even when we think about biblical doctrine and biblical living, as a church, we still often tend to think of it as little monads, each of us individually, and then trying to contribute as best we can, like marbles in a jar. But no, when you look at a family, if I were going to go in as a pastor to a home of a family that is having maybe some issues in their, in their home life, in their family life, I'm not just going to look and say, okay, let me analyze all the things that dad does. All right, now let me go over here and analyze all the things that mom does. No, I'm going to watch how they interact with each other because there's something more to a family than just individuals living under the same roof. Amen? There's more to a family than just a bunch of individuals living in the same house. And there's more to a church than just a bunch of people sitting in a sanctuary together. I don't know how many of you were in Bible study last week. If you were where, where we were in Pratt and the lesson that was last week, it was, Ephesians, it was a Revelation chapter 2 talking about the church at Ephesus and about where he says, if you don't change your ways, I'm going to remove your lampstand from you. And there's a lot of discussion in the Sunday school class in Pratt about what does that mean to take the lampstand out. And they came to a conclusion that the lampstand was not the organized church. It was the spirit of the church. The thing that made that group of people something more than just a group of people having a Bible study together. Sharon and I spent two years worshiping at the International Baptist Church of Dar es Salaam. But it was International Baptist Church in name only. It was not a church. Now, they weren't godless. They were wonderful godly people. But they were not a church. They were basically just a big 100-member Bible study group. They took turns teaching each week. They didn't have any, any leadership. They weren't in, had any kind of mission or purpose together. They just were a bunch of believers that came together once a week because they liked being together. Nothing wrong with that, but it's not a church. And in the same way, doctrine, good, solid, biblical doctrine is what brings us and binds us together as a church. Okay, that's enough of an introduction. Let's talk about the things that I believe the Bible shows us that become the network, the map by which we build our lives together. And ultimately, no matter how many different roads we may draw on this road map, we can all draw the road of salvation, we can draw the road of sanctification, we can draw all kinds of the road of eschatology, Everything goes back to those big, dark interstate lines that crisscross across that map, and those are the things that the Bible, in the Bible, God teaches us about Himself. At the basis of what we are and what we do and how we respond to God, we must make sure we understand what does the Bible say about God. What does God say about Himself? And I can give you, at least for today, five words that describe who God is. Number one, God is creating. He is a creating God. Everything in Scripture, it starts with God creating, it finishes with God creating. Those of you that have gone with me to a graveside service know that I love to read from Revelation chapter 21, the next to last chapter of the book of Revelation, where the new heaven and the new earth are revealed. And God cries out from the throne and says, Look, I make all things new. So at the beginning of creation, God is at work. In the beginning, God created. And at the end, he says, look, I make everything 
new. We read through the Bible. We see not only the physical creation, but then we see human creation. Then we see God beginning to work, and then sin comes into the world. And we go through to the flood, and then God continues working and creating. And then he has Adam, I mean Abraham, and calls Abraham out. And Abraham begins to be the father of a people with whom God is working, and he is creating. And then from that, the people go into exile. They go into slavery in Egypt. And then God uses Moses, and Moses leads them out into the promised land that he has created for them. And all through the Bible... And then you get into the New Testament, God is creating a new family, the church, that he is continuing to form and create. And so if anything describes who God is, he is a creating God. Now over the next several months, after I've laid these five words out for you, I want you to be challenged along with me to see how various places in Scripture point to one or more of these five things. It won't always be a direct correlation, but we'll be able to see how those things work, but the first thing we learn about God is he is creating. Secondly, God is holy. Not only did God create the world around us, he is not morally indifferent to what goes on on this planet. He is not uncaring about what is going on in our world. He is holy, holy both in his perfection, in his sinlessness, and in his separation from his creation. One of the hardest things for secularists to explain is if all that we know is all that we see, where did all that we see come from? It had to come from something that we cannot see. It does not self-generate. The first law of conservation of matter says matter can neither be created nor destroyed. It just is. So if matter is going to be created, if there was at one time no matter, and now there is matter, it had to come from something outside of matter. And our secular friends just go, we don't have an answer for that. I said, well, let me introduce you to the answer to that. Because God is holy and he is righteous, and he stands outside of his creation. You remember in Luke, when Jesus was having his supper with the disciples, and he said, this cup is the covenant. You see, this is what shows us God's otherness. One person can't have a covenant with himself. And creation can't have a covenant with itself. It has to have, has to have a covenant with its creator. And so God the creator comes into a covenant relationship, a relationship of love and relationship with his creation. Not only is he the creator, he has this covenantal relationship with his creation. And he calls us into relationship with him. And obviously already your mind is going forward and thinking, I can see how that works out in salvation. There you go. Salvation is just the latest outpouring, the last and great outpouring of God's desire to be in covenant with his creation. Because you see, there's a problem. God is holy and we are not. God is righteous and we are not. God is sinless and we are not. And so we're separated. There has to be an atonement made where we can be made as one. And this is one of those times when it's not just a play on words. The, one, uh, the word atonement literally means at one meant. Becoming one, becoming linked, getting in sync with one another. God has us reconciled to him so that we can have this relationship because he is a holy God. Not only is he creating, not only is he holy, he also is faithful. Now this is an important passage. I want you to take the time to turn back to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34, we're going to read verse 6 in just a moment. While you're turning there, let me give you a little background. Exodus chapter 34. God not only designs this covenant relationship with us, he wants us to understand that he will be faithful to maintain his part in that covenant, even when we're not. 
Even when we violate the covenant, even when we break the covenant, God maintains his covenant relationship because he proves himself to be faithful. In Exodus chapter 34, there is a, an amazing passage of Scripture that is so easy to read over. And yet it is often called the Old Testament dilemma. Many theologians have referred to it as the Old Testament dilemma in verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed the following. Yahweh. Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. You see the conundrum there? How can God be lovingly, faithfully forgiving, and yet at the same time says, but I cannot let the wicked go unpunished? You've got to be one or the other. Either you're going to be forgiving and loving and gracious, or you're going to be righteous and judging, and you're going to condemn those who have sinned. Which is, guess who? All of us. You see, this is the great conundrum. How can God be faithful to his covenant with his people and yet at the same time be righteous and holy and just? Well, that brings us to the fourth word, which is loving. He does it out of his heart of love. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, Jesus talks about this when he says, it says in, after his resurrection, he's talking to his disciples and he teaches them. It says beginning with, in verse 27 of chapter 24 of Luke, it says beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them, these are the two on the road to Emmaus, the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And then if you jump down to verse 45, which is where he's now in the upper room with his disciples, he says, verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Jesus said, you see, God was able to both love and forgive those who had sinned against him, and yet at the same time, he was able to punish the unrighteous one. How did he do that? By taking all this unrighteousness over here and putting it on one person. This is why we had the example of the lamb, the example of the sacrifice, the importance of it. Saying that the innocent would suffer for the guilty so that the guilty could be in relationship. The one who was innocent then becomes guilty and is punished in place of the one who deserved to be punished. And interestingly enough, even though they had thousands and thousands and thousands of sacrifices given, there still had to be a sacrifice on one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, the only day that was prescribed in the Old Testament for all of Israel to fast because it was reminded them that their own personal sins being forgiven was not enough. It's also interesting to notice that, you know, in most cultures, whenever things started to go bad, bad crop year, major flooding, whatever it may be, they would go running to make offerings. But in the Israelite economy, it didn't matter. It didn't matter whether things were going great or things were going horrible. Once a year, they made their offering. 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 Year of feast, make an offering. Year of famine, make an offering. Because God says, I am above these things. 
and you will worship me regardless of whether things go well or things go badly because I am faithful and I am loving. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6 and 7, he says the very things that Jesus alluded to in Luke 24. It says, we all went astray like sheep. We've all turned our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was pierced, verse 5, because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. Jesus himself in Mark 10 said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ came, the innocent, to die for the guilty so that the covenant faithfulness of God could be honored while at the same time punishing the guilt of the guilty. God solved his own conundrum. In Philippians chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, but just mark it down. You know the passage well. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. It says, Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself, assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Now, beloved, this is where it gets very serious. Because we have to ask ourselves, If God is creating and holy and faithful and loving to the point of sacrificing his own son, taking the guilt that we deserve, dying in our place so that we could have a relationship with one who is always faithful, what does that say about how we become a Christian? Is it just some decision that we make? I think I I think. I've weighed all the pros and cons. I think it might be a good idea for me to become a Christian. Is that really the way it happens? Do we just make this decision? Do we pray some little prayer or sign some little card or agree with an ABC thing and say, yeah, okay, I'm a Christian now? No, my friends, this is God's business. God is in the business of saving people. And that leads me to the fifth and final word of the five, and that is God is a sovereign God. He is creating, he is holy, he is faithful, he is loving, and he is sovereign. In Matthew Chapter 6, it's interesting, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm excuse me, in the Lord's uh, Prayer, or the model prayer, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount, but anyway, he plants in that prayer something that we forget when he says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It doesn't say, dear God, we're asking you to conform your will to ours, give us what we want. We're asking that your will might be done because Jesus was teaching his disciples to understand that ultimately God is sovereign over everything that happens. I don't know about you, but I am glad that he is because our hope as Christians never relies on things that we can do. Our hope never relies on our ability to be righteous enough, godly enough, holy enough to earn something from God. We look at the world around us. People are constantly trying their best to do everything they can to to look good before God, to please God, to, to, to do the right thing so that God will bless them. But our hope as Christians is always in something that we will never be able to attain on our own. Let me ask you a question. Do you really want your grandchildren's grandchildren to have to live in a world like the world we live in today? 
I do not. Can I do anything to change that? I cannot. I don't care if every single one of us mustered all the power we had politically and financially and economically and socially. We could not change what is going on in our world. Only one can change it, and that is our sovereign God. That's why we're studying Revelation this month. To understand that no matter how many times they may impale you on a stake and douse you with, 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 with uh, napalm or whatever and then light you on fire, God is still in control. Let them take your tax-exempt status. Let them take your property. Let them take your rights. We care not for that because we live under a sovereign God who says, I will have the last word. Look at what it says in 2 Peter. Back in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter says these words. 2 Peter 3, verse 13. He says, but based on his promise, we wait for the new heavens and a new earth where righteousness will dwell. Based on what? Our righteousness? No. Our effort? No. Our ability? No. Now, does that mean we shouldn't work for righteousness? Of course we should. We shouldn't be fatalistic about it. We must always work for what is right and what is true and what is just. We must stand for righteousness. But we have to understand that ultimately, no matter how things go in this world, Jesus says to John in Revelation chapter 4, come up here. Come up here. See things from this perspective. And look at who's really in charge of everything that is going on. Sovereignty touches on everything we think about and do. And I'm going to be honest with you right here and right now before we go any further because we're about done. There are some within the Christian faith whom I dearly love as brothers and sisters in Christ who have taken God's sovereignty so far out on the extreme that they believe that God determined from the foundation of the world that Daryl would wear that shirt and no other shirt to church today. Maybe he did. If he did, that's his choice. But I think we can get a little bit confused in the minutiae and we forget the broader sovereignty of God and his plan which is his plan for the destiny of his creation and where it's going to be. And God has said, everyone that calls on the name of my son, I have sovereignly chosen to make them my children. Whether they do that by their own free will, whether they do it by election, whether they do it by both, I don't know. But I do know this, that salvation is of God and not of us. And you see, this is what makes the difference when we start thinking about how we're going to do the things that we do as a church. If we see humanity as basically good, and we just have to help bring out the good in them, then our job should be to bring out the good in people and encourage them to try to do better and, and think better about themselves. And you know, you're not so bad. Come on, just pull yourself out of your bootstraps and let's get on with this thing and get moving on. But if we see ourselves the way the Bible sees us, then the encouragement, as Daryl mentioned earlier, that we give is the encouragement that in spite of our sin, in spite of our loss, in spite of our brokenness, God says, I have the remedy. There is a bomb in Gilead to save the sin-sick soul. And so that balm is applied by the Holy Spirit into our lives. And that's where we find our encouragement in the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. Let me close with the passage that we talked about just a couple of weeks ago in 1 John chapter 3. This wonderful affirmation. Dear friends, 1 John chapter 3 verse 2, he says, Dear friends, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. What a day that will be when my Jesus I will see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace, when I take him by the hand and he leads me through the promised land, what a day, a glorious day that will be. 
This is the God of the Bible. This is what takes expository preaching, opening up one passage of Scripture and exposing it so the Holy Spirit can teach us into more than a Sunday-by-Sunday sitcom-ish sort of experience. You've heard me, and I don't mean that by sitcom meaning it's a comedy. I mean sitcom in the sense of, you know how those 30-minute shows go? Every episode you have a problem, and before 30 minutes are up, it's all solved. And you go home and wait till next week and watch the next episode. How many of us live our Christian lives that way? We come to church today, we want to hear a verse of Scripture that will give us something that we can hang our hats on until next Sunday. We'll be back for the next rendition. But what biblical doctrine does for us is it ties all of the Bible together in one roadmap. And when we see that roadmap, like that big Rand McNally atlas lying in our lap, we can begin to understand how God is working his purposes in our lives as individuals, in our lives as a church, and in us together as a body. And then we go out in the world with courage and humility and grace and thankfulness and peace in the midst of chaos and calamity because we know the story. Now, we're going to look into this topic a whole lot more beginning in September in various settings, and I'll tell you more about that in the weeks ahead. But for today, I want to close by saying, when we see this picture of God, we come to realize the fact that this is a God who must be responded to. And not just at that point where we become believers. He must be responded to every day. Every day. Those of you that worked for a living, most of us worked for a living. Most of us, some of us are still working for a living. Very few of us have jobs where we can go to work tomorrow morning and say, I think I'll do this today. I think I'll just prop my feet up on my desk and nap till lunchtime and then go to lunch and come back and do a few things on the computer and that'll be my day. Most of us have somebody that says, this is your task for today. It can be on a clipboard. It can be in a memo. It can be an assignment. We have work to do that's been given to us by someone who is over us. And they are human, fallible, sinful people just like we are. But in our Christian walk, we also have a heavenly father, a heavenly boss, if I may, who is not sinful, who is not malicious, who is not self-centered and self-seeking. He is honoring his kingdom that he is building, and he is doing things for his glory and for our good. And every day he says, now, Bill, Steve, Mary, Sharon, Ron, Joe, I have something for you to do today. Well, I really was hoping I'd kind of get today off. No, 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 no. You'll have all eternity off in just a few short years. But today, we have work to do. And so our old grandparents saying, we'll work till Jesus comes. And then, he'll take us home. But for now, every day, this creating, holy, faithful, loving, sovereign God says, I have something for you to do today. And the question is, are you listening? And are you obeying? Some of us in this room today have never yielded our lives Jesus Christ. You see, this is a strange thing about, well, not strange, but God loves you. He loves you more than you can ever imagine. If you are not yet one of his followers, let me help you understand something. God is not angry at you. He hates your sin, but primarily because he sees what it's doing to you and what it's doing to his honor, because you were created in his image. But he commands you to repent. Not because he's trying to put you in his thumb screws, because he knows what's best for you. It's like when a parent says, I don't care if you sit there till bedtime, you will eat those green beans. 
It's not because they want to be mean and try to show you who's the boss. Well, maybe sometimes it is. But, but hopefully, it's because we know you need those green beans in your diet. And so we're going to make you eat them because we know it's best for you. And so God says, because I love you and I want you in my family, I'm going to command you to repent. So you will have to consciously refuse to obey me and walk away from me out into eternity with your back to me. And I will give you exactly what you want, an eternity without me. And I can guarantee you it will not be a pleasant thing. Or you can obey that command. Turn from your sin and yourself and turn to Christ. Recognize that the conundrum in your life, how God can love you and at the same time say, but I must punish you. What he does, he says, but I will take your punishment that you deserve and I will put it on my son and let him be punished in your place. So that if you will accept that offer, I will adopt you as my son or my daughter. So if you're not there yet, today would be a wonderful day for you to begin that process. And I would love to walk with you through it. There may be others of you here today. You say, oh, pastor, thank you. That was a wonderful message. But you know what? I've been a Christian for 30 years, 40 years, 70 years. I know that. And if I were to give you a piece of paper and say, list for me the five ways that you've grown in Christ in the last six months, how easy would that be? Could you give me six, six years? Okay, six years. Many of us, after we became Christians, our growth has been at kind of an inchworm sort of a pace. Now, I'm just glad we're moving in the right direction. Don't get me wrong. But God says, I have so much more I would love to do with you, but you're going to have to listen to me every day. So that I can give you your assignment because every assignment is designed to make you stronger. And so our response is, yes, Lord, I want to be listening to you. I want you to challenge me. I want you to stretch me. I want you to push me in directions that I would not normally want to go. I want you to enable me by your spirit to do things I never thought I could do. I watched eight teenagers this past weekend, this past week. When they first heard, i got to tell you the story, then we'll pray. When they first heard from Pam Crable, not Crable, Crable, no Ken, I don't think. When they first heard from Pam Crable, they were going to go knocking on doors to pass out flyers. I saw the blood drain out of their faces. And you know what, to be honest with you, I got a little nervous too, because I was going to have to split these teenagers up without an adult, walking up and down the streets of Pratt, Kansas, passing out flyers. Now, just so you understand, okay, and I'm not trying to simplify this, but what they basically were doing was they were going inviting people to uh, a snow cone party at the local park. And so when they realized, they said, oh, that's all I have to do, I just have to go say, hey, we're having a snow cone party, we'd like for you to come, have a good day. Well, I can do that. Well, you know what? And they did. 780 flyers later, 780 homes that were touched in a city of 6,000 people later, they realized, and the word, they've already, by the way, I got a note from, Miss Brittany, late last night, she says, as of last night, we've registered over 100 pre-registered kids for Vacation Bible School, most of them from the homes where you left flyers. So just so you know that. She said that is the most we have ever pre-registered in the history of doing this event. So, now, not all, and we know 100 didn't come to the, to the snow cone parties, but they got the word. Okay, my point is this, beloved. Those kids never thought they could go door-to-door, knocking on people's doors, inviting them to come to a snow cone party. And yet, you know what? They did. 
and best I could tell, we had maybe three people, literally three people, that said, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to listen to what you have to say. Thanks anyway. I had one lady, I knocked on her door and then saw the no soliciting sign and it said including religious matters. So I prayed, oh Lord, please don't let her come to the door. But she did. As I was walking away, I said, ma'am, I'm so sorry. I did not see your sign. Have a good day. And she smiled and waved. She was fine. She did not throw a rock at me or a brick or anything. Who was with me that day? I don't remember. Brittany, you were with me. My point is this. God will always give us tasks that are beyond what we think we can do. We just have to learn to listen. We're going to be learning a lot over these next few weeks and months about what does it mean to build our church on sound biblical doctrine and how does that impact our lives. But for today, I just want you to listen to what he says to you today, tomorrow, when you wake up, this week, this month, as we seek to serve him together. Let's bow our heads for the word. Lord, thank you for your word. We love you because you do not stay hidden from us. We remember in Romans 1 where you talk about how you're revealed in creation, but even that is veiled. But in your word, you teach us who you are. And not only that, but you give us these threads that run through your word, these interstate <laughs> lines on the road map of doctrine that help us to understand that you are creating and holy and faithful and loving and sovereign and then we can build all of the other things that we learn from your word around those five pillars those five footings of our building as we expose your word, as we open it and allow you to teach us, allow the message of the word to be the message for our lives, and we allow what we know about you because of the sound doctrine that we teach in accordance with. But Father, there are some of us here today that aren't in sync with you because they've never, we've never accepted the offer that your son has given us to pay the penalty for our sins. We're still convinced that somehow or other we can prove ourselves worthy. I pray that today by your spirit you might help us to see that we're never going to be able to do that. We are flawed. We are fatally flawed. There are others of us, Father, who are your children, and yet we have not lived as though you were our Father who each day wanted to give us instructions for the day and what we were to do specifically in that day. And today we've been challenged to allow you in your creativity, in your holiness and faithfulness and love, and in your sovereignty to give us what is best for us and what will bring you the most glory in our lives. So Father, if there's some of us that have gotten away from that, I pray that today we will come back home and allow you to once again be the master and controller of every aspect of our life. For us in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen.